Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The future of our civilization is at stake, warns Al Gore. The former vice president says America must abandon fossil fuels within a decade or risk losing everything. We're borrowing money from China to buy oil from the Persian Gulf to burn it in ways that destroy the planet. Every bit of that has to change. Also, the lighter side of summer, flights of fancy that set hearts aglow. When you see fireflies flashing, you're looking at a really well-evolved courtship ritual, basically. Ooh, she's flashing she's a lot, really actually. She's up. really flashing. Yeah, look, look at that. Whoa. That's great. So that means she's hot to trot. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> we take to the fields of firefly dreams and prepare for a shift in geological time. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Today, I challenge our nation to commit to producing 100% of our electricity from renewable energy and truly clean, carbon-free sources within 10 years. Al Gore has thrown down the gauntlet. The former U.S. vice president, who received a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to combat climate change, says global warming threatens our national security, requiring us to transform our society and ourselves within 10 years. Joining me to discuss Al Gore's pronouncement is Living on Earth's Jeff Young. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. Sounds like uh, Gore is filling in the blank. If we can put a man on the moon? If we can put a man on the moon, then we can uh, be carbon-free inside of 10 years. That, that was the direct analogy that he was making here. And, and the time frame is also the same as uh, what uh, President Kennedy used with the moonshot challenge, 10 years. And that's really what's new here is this very aggressive timetable uh, within a decade to greatly boost solar, wind, geothermal power, and make a coal-fired power catch and store all of its carbon emissions, all of that inside of 10 years. But why now, Jeff? Well, uh, that's a good question because uh, we, we've heard the broad outlines of, of all of this from Vice President Gore before. I think um, Gore sees that right now there's so much attention being paid to the cost of fuel. With $4 a gallon gasoline, it's, it's all candidates hear about on the campaign trail. It's almost all you hear about here on Capitol Hill, gas prices, gas prices. What Gore is trying to do, I think, is to reintroduce this notion that you can't just focus on that one aspect. You also have to look at the national security aspects of foreign oil. You also have to remember climate change. If you just attack one, you're not going to succeed. It's kind of like it's the, the three-headed hydra. It's all the same beast. Our dangerous over-reliance on carbon-based fuels is at the core of all three of these challenges, the economic, environmental, and national security crises. We're borrowing money from China to buy oil from the Persian Gulf to burn it in ways that destroy the planet. Every bit of that has to change. Well, it's good rhetoric, uh, Jeff, but 10 years is a short fuse. Is this technologically possible? 
Well, that's the big question, and that uh, depends completely on whom you ask. Uh, I spoke with some energy experts from environmental groups who were in attendance there at Gore's speech, and they say, yes, we can do this. It's a challenge, but we can do it. We have to do it. Uh, other people say uh, they're, well, let's just say they're a bit more skeptical. Here's uh, Ohio Republican Senator George Voinovich. Carbon-free in 10 years is ridiculous. I think anybody that looks at that statement uh, objectively that knows anything about it would have to say it's ridiculous. And I think a lot of Republicans see a political opportunity here, that if Democrats begin to place an emphasis on climate change and a potentially costly approach to climate change, they can turn this and say, aha, see, they're just uh, uh, interested in this one thing. They don't care about your pocketbook concerns. Now, Jeff, Al Gore has supported Barack Obama in his bid for the presidential nominee, right? Yeah, gave him a a full-throated endorsement. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that he is saying what Obama can't at this stage of the campaign? I I think that's a fair way of putting it. I think uh, what Gore is doing here in a way is kind of, uh, you know, broadening what it is possible for people in the political realm to talk about safely. And uh, so Senator Obama, for example, uh, issued a statement after Gore's speech saying, we applaud the speech and he's a champion on this, but didn't specifically accept or endorse any of the ideas like the 10-year time frame and uh, the carbon tax that would come along with that, things like that. So, yeah, he is he's kind of, uh, you know, broadening the window here, if you will. But not floating a a balloon. Not not exactly. But, you know, the, the politics and the cost of this are, are inter- interwoven. You know, the, the question is, okay, that's great, but how are we going to pay for it? And how much is it going to cost? What's going to be the economic impact? And that's the vulnerability that I think uh, Republicans uh, are going to want to exploit. And that's where uh, Gore wants to get his argument out there. And his argument essentially is this. Look, if you focus on, on drilling, the supply side of our, our, of our oil problem, the global demand is such that uh, China is just going to, to suck all that up. They're going to drink our milkshake, as they said in that great movie. So it doesn't matter how much supply we create. What we need to do is attack the demand side. When demand for oil and coal increases, their price goes up. When demand for solar cells increases, the price often comes down. That's the difference. So, you know, these questions, how much is it going to cost and can we afford it and is it technologically feasible? You know what? I think those are the same kind of questions, same kind of debate that people were having somewhere around 1961, 1962, after Kennedy made the moonshot challenge. And then about nine years later, uh, astronaut Neil Armstrong was making one giant leap for mankind. There you go. So maybe this is doable. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. You're welcome, Bruce. Living on Earth, Washington correspondent Jeff Young. Since 1985, the federal government has paid farmers for fields they don't sow. It's called the Conservation Reserve Program, and it was designed to stabilize the price farmers got for their crops by limiting production. The CRP worked, and then some. Not only did it save family farms, it also helped restore millions of acres of land that lay fallow, benefiting the environment and wildlife. However, today, with prices of farm commodities soaring, many farmers in the U.S. Department of Agriculture want to put the fallow fields back into production. But the National Wildlife Foundation says not so fast. The environmental group won an injunction in federal court keeping the lands off limits, at least temporarily. 
And that's where things now stand with the CRP. We invited Chad Hart, an agricultural economist at Iowa State University in Ames, to tell us where things are going. Hello, Mr. Hart. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Bruce. The Conservation Reserve Program, as I understand, has really been a success story. It has been. Uh, it's been an environmental program around about 20 years. We've got around 35 million acres in the program, preserving some environmental benefits. Well, providing environmental benefits by taking the land out of circulation and also providing a, an economic boost to family farms, it's really helped them. It has. Um, it was established at a time of low commodity prices, and so the, the rental rates that the farmers received were a definite boost to their income. Well, how does it work? The farmer essentially gets paid not to grow on his land? The farmer sort of receives, a, a, if you will, a rental rate to keep that land out of production. So it is based upon the productive capacity of the land, and the farmer agrees in a contract to say, okay, I'm not going to plant this land for the next 10 years in exchange for that payment. Hmm. How much does he get? It varies. I think nationwide average is around $50 an acre for your higher producing land, such as here in Iowa, more like $100 an acre. Hmm. So if uh, a farmer was to raise, say, corn on his land in Iowa these days, uh, how much would he get? Uh, on Iowa these days, uh, given the prices that we're seeing today, you're talking about net returns probably on the order of six to $700 an acre. Ooh, so if I was a farmer who had signed on to CRP, I'd want to opt out, right? Given the prices we're seeing today, that makes it highly attractive to opt out of the CRP program. And what would it cost me to opt out? I mean, I signed the contract with the federal government. Yeah, you've signed the contract, and your penalty would be you'd have to repay everything that you've received on that contract so far, plus at least 25% of the next year's payment that you would receive. So what does the Department of Agriculture propose doing? Well, at least in the near term, what they proposed in May was that they would release on a short-term basis CRP lands in order for emergency haying and grazing, where farmers could release livestock on the land to graze the land, or they could harvest the forage on the land and feed that to their livestock. What we've seen with the droughts, especially in the southeast and southwest, and the flooding here in the upper Midwest, um, we've seen some sizable impacts on our agricultural production over the last couple of years. And so we've opened up CRP lands to grazing for livestock. Now the question becomes, as we look down the road beyond this year, if they continue to have dry weather, what happens then? Well, and it's not only cattlemen that want relief from CRP. No, it's not. Um, what we're seeing, especially with the higher corn, soybean, and wheat prices we're seeing today, you're seeing pressure from other users of those products in order to try to bring those prices down. And one way to bring it down is to plant more land to those crops and, and produce those crops. How does ethanol and corn-based ethanol uh, factor into the CRP? Corn-based ethanol would factor in mainly due to it impacting commodity pricing. And so when we look at this economic opportunity that farmers have with the, the possibility of bringing CRP land out into production, one of the reasons for wanting to do that would be to produce more crops, which would be utilized for biofuels. And so that's one of the many reasons why we've seen higher commodity pricing and the attractiveness of opting out of the CRP program. Of course, conservationists really like the CRP program. What kind of um, ecological benefits has the CRP program had out there in Iowa? 
Well, in Iowa, like I say, we've seen much more wildlife habitat, especially when we think about um, the ringneck pheasant, for example. They utilize the buffer strips along the waterways that many of those are in the CRP program. Uh, you're also seeing a reduction in soil erosion uh, throughout Iowa due to the conservation practices and having this land idled at least for you know a 10-year period that helps bring down the amount of soil entering into our water streams and flowing down through the Mississippi River Valley. Well, the National Wildlife Federation has, has sued the Department of Agriculture and, and gotten an injunction in federal court. Yeah, we're, we are seeing competing interests looking at the CRP program and, and the changes that are being not only implemented, but future proposals in changing the CRP program and how that's going to play out between the environmental benefits we get versus the economic benefits of bringing that land into production. Well, can we do both? Is there a way of balancing the conservation and balancing the farmer's need for finances? I think there is a possibility of that balance, but it does take modifications to the program. Not all CRP land is as environmentally sensitive as any other piece. Um, There are some more sensitive pieces that should be targeted to be kept within the CRP program. At the same time, having some of that we'll call less marginal land uh, brought back out into production would help lower prices. So you've got droughts, you've got floods that are affecting farmers, you've got the ethanol production raising the commodity prices. We've had sort of a perfect storm in terms of our commodity pricing and that there have been a lot of factors that have created a higher price situation out there. And so that's why we're reevaluating how we look at the CRP and how we target land to be in that program. Well, Mr. Hart, I want to thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here, Bruce. Chad Hart is with the Center for Agricultural and Rural Development at Iowa State University. Coming up, new studies about coal. It's a burning issue in China and a health hazard closer to home. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In 2004, the Chinese government shut down a coal-fired power plant in the Midwest city of Tongliang. The plant closing provided researchers with a unique opportunity to study the effects of coal pollution on the development of children in the area. Dr. Deliang Tang and Frederica Pereira with the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health conducted the research in China. Their study now appears in the latest edition of Environmental Health Perspectives. Dr. Pereira is the director of the center, and Dr. Pereira seems you got very lucky with the closing of this coal-fired power plant. We certainly did. Uh, These are uh, rare opportunities where one can actually um, study and measure the benefits of an intervention, in this case, the closure of a polluting coal-fired power plant. And that allowed us to enroll one group of pregnant mothers and their babies and follow them for several years and then enroll a second group after the plant had been shut down and compare their exposures, and their developmental outcomes. So what did you find? Well, when the babies were more exposed, they had higher levels of the pollutants in their umbilical cord blood, and they uh, fared less well on the developmental tests at age two, particularly in the motor area. And we're certainly not talking about uh, loss of IQ points here. But the test is intended to detect children who are intellectually at risk and in need of remediation to avoid uh, later problems in academic performance. How significant were the differences in these two groups of children? 
There was a 40% reduction in the level of exposure as we measured it, and a 60% reduction in the frequency of developmental delay in the motor area. What pollutants were you looking at specifically? Well, specifically, we're looking at the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and these are, are known as PAHs. They are very common combustion products from coal burning and burning of other organic material, and they do many things. They're, they're known carcinogens as well as um, developmental toxicants. How, how polluting was this power plant that was closed down? Well, the power plant was uh, fairly polluting. It burned 25,000 tons of coal a year. It emitted particulates in SO2 at a, at a rate exceeding uh, the U.S. standards, certainly, and the Chinese standards, and that was the reason why the government had ordered shutdown not only of this plant but of, of the entire category of the older power plants. What about these new modern coal-fired power plants that, that China is now building? Well, I think um, these newer power plants will be certainly be less polluting than the one that we were studying, no question about it. And, of course, one can't directly extrapolate from one study in a setting such as the one we, we had here to others. But um, I can say, though, that in our studies in other countries, in the U.S. and in Poland, at lower levels of exposure than we were measuring here in China, we could detect significant effects on early child development as well as on fetal growth. So we take from that that there is no apparent threshold or safe level of exposure to these pollutants. So that as we, um, we infer that as one reduces the levels of exposure to these contaminants, one will see benefits in terms of child health and development. Of course, China's producing three quarters of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. Well, that's correct. I, I think China, as well as many other countries, are, are working very hard now to achieve more independence from fossil fuel and also to switch to renewables and efficient utilization of energy. But in the meantime, I hope that our study will be helpful in showing the good news from an action by a government and recording that benefit in terms of child health. Dr. Frederica Pereira is director of the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health. Well, Dr. Pereira, I want to thank you very much. You're most welcome. It's not just residents who live near coal-fired power plants that can be harmed. Those who reside in mining communities can suffer too, though scientists have conducted little research about them until now. A new study out of West Virginia University finds that people in coal mining communities are much more likely to suffer from lung, kidney, and heart disease, even if they never worked in a mine. Environmentalists hope this study can help slow the growth of mining in Appalachia. Scott Finn has our report. For years, dust blew off stockpiles of coal and rained down upon the little town of Sylvester, a tiny community of neat one-story homes squeezed between a steep mountain and the Coal River in southern West Virginia. In 2001, some residents of Sylvester, fed up with the dust, sued mining company Massey Energy, and eventually the company was forced to cover one of those coal piles. Now a huge white geodesic dome looms like a spaceship over the town. But it hasn't stopped the dust from the other piles of coal or the huge trucks that travel the main road. That's why Michael Hendricks, a West Virginia University researcher, is visiting Sylvester to measure the level of air pollution. 
This is a, what you call a shoestring operation. <laughs> Today, Hendricks is standing on the porch of a house about 1,000 feet from a facility where they crush and prepare coal to be transported. A coal train inches along nearby. What I'm trying to do is just home make a, a little protective device that'll hang this air monitor so it'll be protected from the rain, but will also allow a free airflow into the monitor so we can record the level of particulate matter that's in the air around here. He takes an air quality monitor, it's about the size of a hardback book, and places it in what looks like a metal cage. And where did you get this uh, wire? That's a toilet roll holder that I bought at Walmart. <laughs> then he wires the entire contraption upside down from a rafter on the porch. It will measure the amount of particulate matter, basically coal and rock dust particles, in the air. This is phase two of Hendricks's research. In phase one, he compared the rate of disease in West Virginia's coal mining counties to counties with no mining. He made sure to take into account any health differences based on things other than coal, such as smoking rates, education, and income. Hendricks found that people in coal mining communities have a 70% increased risk for developing kidney disease, a 64% increased risk for developing chronic lung disease, and are 30% more likely to report high blood pressure. His work was published recently in the American Journal of Public Health. Men and women are equally affected, and since most coal miners are still men, he says the results support his working hypothesis that exposure to coal pollution causes higher rates of disease, not just for coal miners, but for everyone in the community. Now, Hendricks is measuring the levels of air pollution around coal facilities. After he hangs the air monitor in place, Hendricks goes inside Elizabeth Casto's house and sits on her powder blue couch. He tells Casto and her sister, Pauline Canterbury, about some early results from his air monitors in Sylvester. He found that the levels of particulate matter were highest as you were closer to the facility, and then it falls off as you move away. Casto and Canterbury are part of a group that fought the coal plant in court and forced Massey Energy to build this strange geodesic dome. It's how they earned their nickname, the Dust Busters. So there's evidence that the levels of air pollution are in fact impacted by the activities of the mining industry that's going on. We know that. We know, well, <laughs> we all know it, but we have some evidence. We know that out here, Mike. <laughs> we have some evidence We've had now. some big doses of it out here. Huge doses. The connection between coal pollution and disease seems obvious to coalfield residents. Casto's husband, Perry, was a disabled coal miner with black lung, and the dust in the air aggravated his disease. Just choked himself to death, and his heart doctor said, no way. So we went back to Florida. He just, he'd beg us to bring him home. What are you going to do? Just no way. Perry Casto died in 2003 in Florida instead of his hometown of Sylvester. Hendricks is trying to move from personal experiences like this to concrete evidence, evidence that environmentalists have been waiting for. Joe Lovett, executive director of the Appalachian Center for the Economy and the Environment in Lewisburg, West Virginia, says the research could be crucial in future lawsuits challenging the coal industry. Lawyers will usually represent people for that kind of thing, particularly if they think that liability is easy to establish. And so the kind of work that's going on may show that, that there's injuries occurring and that brings lawyers around. If I, if I lived in a community and somebody wanted to build a prep plant near me, I would 
do everything I could do to try to keep that prep plan away from my, my neighborhood. In fact, Hendricks is talking to lawyers for a community in Kentucky that's fighting a proposed coal preparation plant like the one in Sylvester. They're demanding the coal company build the plant farther from town, or at least take steps to control the dust. Environmentalists say that lawsuits are the only way to get the coal industry's attention, but Hendricks is getting no support from state officials for his research. West Virginia Governor Joe Manchin, a former coal broker, says his administration doesn't have the resources to help. A spokesman for the West Virginia Coal Association did not respond to a request for comment on this story. Outside her sister's home, Pauline Canterbury points to the steep hills surrounding her town. And from east, west, north, and south, surface mines are creeping closer. It's Sylvester right now is the center point, and it's coming this way. That way there is printer. You know what printer is. Printer is one permit right after the other. Coal prices are at record highs, and since 2003, production is up 10% in West Virginia. Canterbury and the other dustbusters are looking for ways to slow down the onslaught, and they're hopeful that Hendricks's research is just the ammunition they need. For Living on Earth, I'm Scott Finn in Sylvester, West Virginia. In case you hadn't noticed, we're living in a whole new epic. Goodbye, Holocene. Hello, Anthropocene. For the last 10,000 years or so, we've been blessed with an unusually mild and consistent climate. But stratigraphers, the experts who decide this stuff, say we're now in a whole new scene, brought on by us. The International Commission on Stratigraphy will soon be meeting in Norway to make the epic-changing name official. Jan Zalachevich is chairman of the United Kingdom Stratigraphy Commission, based in Leicester, England. Well, if we look at the uh, the changes that are taking place now and have taken place over the last couple of centuries uh, in terms of uh, changes to atmospheric composition, uh, soils and sediments, changes to uh, the biology of the Earth, we consider that is comparable to some of the, the great changes of the geological past. Uh, hence, uh, we propose that formally uh, we are no longer in the Holocene, but we're in the Anthropocene. Well, when did that happen? Well, the great change um, from, if you like, a time when humans were around and having an impact, but not a global impact, uh, to humans really changing the, the surface of the Earth, probably started about the Industrial Re- Revolution. So that would be about the year uh, 1800 or so, when the human population went above a billion. And also, uh, crucially, humans started using coal, oil, gas uh, to hugely amplify the, the energy they could exploit. The idea is that civilization, human civilization, has changed geology. That's right, yes. yeah. Uh, because if you were to look at the, the, the changes we're making, for instance, the changes to the Earth's biology, great changes on land and changes in the sea as well, many species becoming extinct, many others being translocated to different parts of the globe, uh, that will translate into the future fossil record. And probably already uh, we're making quite a distinctive signal that will be um, detectable for many millions of years afterwards. So humankind has actually forced evolution in a new direction. Yes, almost certainly. Uh, In fact, uh, undoubtedly, we've already made a number of species extinct. uh, And I think one 
entirely novel effect is the way that we've transplanted many species of animals and plants from one continent to another, from one ocean to another. Uh, and the effect of that is still unpredictable, but it, it will be large and will translate into geology. So stratigraphers in the, in the distant future, your colleagues, will be digging through the record and they'll come across Anthropocene. They will almost certainly see uh, a change in the, uh, in the rocks of, of the future. Uh, so the change might include, let's say, an extinction event, much like the extinction event that we can see that took place about 65 million years ago when the, the dinosaurs and many other creatures died out. They may well see evidence of changes in sea level. They may see evidence of changes in the chemistry of the oceans. For instance, the oceans becoming much more acid and hence literally dissolving parts of the sea floor, um, where you've got deposits of lime, of calcium carbonate at the moment. Plus all the artifacts of our generation, all the plastic, the concrete, the steel, the cars, all the junk. That's right, yes. A, a city is for us something we live in, uh, but it's also a very material object which, in effect, will form a, a future stratum. You know, all of that uh, concrete and brick and glass and tarmac, asphalt, that is potentially preservable, uh, and that will make a very distinctive rock type. So if we were going through the geological record, say, 15,000 years in the future, would you find a bright, big demarcation in that record? You'd know when you hit the uh, Anthropocene. Yes, I think if, if you would look at even 15 million years in the future, then the changes that we're causing right now are geologically uh, abrupt, almost in instantaneous. You know, in fact, 15 million years in the future, the changes that uh, are happening right now will look almost akin to that of the meteorite strike, uh, which it is thought you know, killed off the dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous period. You know, it is, we're, we're looking at that level of rapidity. So, Dr. Zalashevich, um, how consequential are humans in terms of, you know, the natural cycles of the Earth? I mean, gravity and erosion are the forces that are really shaping the planet, right? They are. In terms of, let's say, landscape formation, uh, erosion, denudation, and so forth, uh, then, yes, gravity, water, wind, waves, and so on. There have been a few recent studies, including some published by the Geological Society of America, uh, which have suggested that humans have now taken over top spot as regards uh, eroding the surface of the earth, as regards transporting masses of soil and rock and sediment uh, around the surface of the earth. It's again, it's another of the uh, symptoms uh, of the Anthropocene. And that is both sediment transported as we build things, as we build our cities and roads and bridges and so forth, uh, and also sediment transported as we convert a large part of the landscape into feedstock and agriculture uh, moves a lot of sediment around simply as a byproduct of farming. We're also at the edge of, of going to other planets and changing their geology. I mean, That's right, yeah. So it could be not just earthbound geology that you're going to be dealing with in the future, but planetary, with the age of planetarian. Well, that's right. There have been ideas which are partly in the realm of science fiction of going, let's say, to, uh, to Mars and, uh, if you like, terraforming it, trying to alter conditions, the, you know, the atmosphere and such like, you know, to make it more habitable. Whether that is realistic or not you know, is, is hard to say, but those ideas have been floated, you know, as they have for Venus. It's interesting also that um, in this context, uh, the, the word terraforming has been applied to colleagues of mine with respect to Earth. 
that humans are in effect now terraforming the earth. Boy, this is exciting stuff. It, it is. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, we live in a remarkable time geologically. And, and what's really exciting is that just at the moment as humanity has got the power to change the planet, it's also got the ability to reflect on the changes that it's causing to Earth. Well, I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Jan Zalachevich is chairman of the United Kingdom Stratigraphy Commission. Coming up, who turned off the lights? We go hunting for fireflies. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Niagara Falls, the name comes from the Iroquois Indian word meaning thunder of waters. And thunder it does. Three quarters of a million gallons of water a second cascades over Niagara. One-fifth of the world's fresh water flows over the falls. It's an awe-inspiring sight, the falls' natural beauty and hydroelectric energy competing forces that over the years have attracted honeymooners and developers, daredevils and corporate polluters. The story of the history and transformation of the falls is told by Ginger Strand in her new book, Inventing Niagara, Beauty, Power and Lies. You write that it's the most recognized landscape in the world, but we don't really see it. I think that's true, yeah. There are, there are pictures of it everywhere, right? And there's a sense in which it is the iconic American landscape and that, you, you know, you kind of haven't been to America until you've seen the falls. But it's interesting that something so awesome and something so magnificent can have so little that's genuine about it. They try to control just about everything. They try to control not just the water going over, but the mist, <laughs> That's right. This is what fascinated me overall. At every every step of the way, it was uh, it was a kind of contest between humans and nature. And you know, we were always stacking the deck. The international control structure that's upstream of the falls. People look at that and they think it has something to do with water diversion. It helps the water go into the tunnels or something. It has nothing to do with water diversion. It's just to redirect the water to make the falls look pretty. I mean, at one point in 1969, I think you write, they actually turned off the American side of the falls. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rocky rubble, they call it talus, at the base of the American Falls. And the Army Corps of Engineers decided, um, in their infinite wisdom, that they should clear all those rocks away because they're really not very pretty and people would rather see the waterfall looking, you know, bigger and, and more muscular. So they, they turned off the falls and they, they drilled core samples and studied the whole rock face. And they realized that if they took the rocky rubble away, the whole thing would just collapse it's actually holding up the waterfall, so they changed their mind about that. Well, I wanted to ask you about daredevils. It's, Niagara Falls, of course, is synonymous with people who are walking across tightropes and people going over it in a barrel. Um, mm-hmm. There was a guy named Blondin. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, yes. 
and he actually carries somebody, his, his, his manager, on his back as he's walking across the wire. On a, on a tightrope, yeah. And what Blondin was, was doing was, to some extent, a, a commentary on the, this upcoming civil war and the Underground Railroad. You know, Niagara Falls was one of the key crossing points into Canada for fugitive slaves. And the only place where they could get across to Canada that was serviced by public transportation was was Niagara. They could take a train right up and they could go across the bridge or they could row across the river. And this was just, it was a national spectacle throughout the 1800s, but especially in the 1850s, people were crossing on a daily basis into Canada. And everyone was fascinated by this. And it's 1859 and 1860 when Blondin does his famous tightrope performances at the falls. And he does them in shackles and he does them with a sack over his head and he does them, you know, in the middle of the night with a sack over his head. I mean, they're, they're incredible performances. But I also began to think, whoa, this guy was actually making a very sly but pointed comment Tell me about Annie Taylor. How old is she when she goes over the falls in a barrel? She was 63. She lied. She said she was 43, but um, she was 63, an unemployed dancing teacher from Bay City, Michigan, and she was the first person to survive uh, going over the horseshoe in a barrel. It's perpetually a disappointment to history. They really wish it could have been someone younger or cuter or, you know, some athletic guy. But no, it's this uh, school marm, 1901. And the, the interest in barrel stunts, interestingly, really kind of fell off. After the falls were turned off in 1969, I think it, it kind of became superfluous to go, why would you go over the waterfall in a barrel when, you know, its owners can turn it off? <laughs> it's, it's not such a great feat of mastery anymore. How did uh, Niagara Falls become the honeymoon capital of the world? Well, the honeymoon is not as old an institution as we tend to think it is. It kind of got going as a popular thing to do in the early 1800s. And that was about the same time that Niagara became accessible. It became accessible in 1825 when the Erie Canal arrived nearby and people could suddenly get up there um, conveniently. So uh, Niagara became the sort of peak, the, the sort of climax of the American Grand Tour. They called it the Northern Tour. Of course, it really got a boost when Marilyn Monroe starred in Niagara. Yes, absolutely. Take me, take me in your arms. She sang of love just as she lived for love, like a Lorelei flaunting her charms as she lured men on and on to their eternal destruction. And her own husband was no exception. It's getting late. Hand me my slip. I hate to move when we have a fight. Never want to leave your side. <laughs> Give me some orange juice, Georgie. It's Marilyn Monroe skyrocketing to new dramatic heights. When uh, Marilyn came in 1952 and they filmed uh, Niagara, it became just a, an epidemic at the falls. Everybody called up and wanted to come, and they wanted to stay in the hotel that uh, Marilyn stayed in, which, of course, didn't exist. It was a set. I became intrigued with uh, how Marilyn and Marilyn's story reflected some of the same issues of artifice and beauty that the falls themselves did at the same time. You know, the Army Corps was rebuilding Niagara Falls in those very years, the, the very time that Marilyn came to, to the falls to film Niagara and subsequently became a superstar. And the same kinds of questions attached to, to Marilyn. Is she real or is she artificial? You know, her director, Billy Wilder, famously called her a DuPont product. 
And, of course, it was DuPont, the chemical company, which was responsible for so much of the toxic waste that wound up getting dumped into the river and, therefore, over the falls. That's right. DuPont and uh, Hooker and, uh, you know, Electromet, Union Carbide, a whole, a whole slew of the, the American electrochemical industry was centered at Niagara Falls for many, many years. Right. Hooker Chemical, of course, with Love Canal. Yes, it was appalling. And it, it went on for decades, the, the dumping. Um, it was an abandoned hydroelectric canal begun many, many years earlier where just all sorts of things were dumped. And I think they identified 82 separate chemicals when they finally did begin testing that were leaking into people's basements and showing up on playgrounds. Children were turning up with strange burns. There were miscarriages and birth defects. Nobody was really sure what wastes were in the canal, but deadly dioxin was identified. The Environmental Protection Agency had been formed just a few years earlier and had not dealt with a public crisis like this before. The residents' fear turned to frustration and anger. And many people are familiar with Love Canal as the beginning of the environmental justice movement. This is when, you know, people began to talk about where these places are sited and, you know, the kinds of working class people who tend to bear the burden of hazardous waste. But few people realize that it's actually a stone's throw from the Niagara River. So this toxic brew was going over the falls. Well, how did Niagara Falls become such a site for toxic waste and radioactive waste? The Manhattan Project, you write, um, dumped all sorts of of radioactive waste from uh, the building of the atomic bombs there. And there are, what, almost 300,000 radioactive mice buried there? (laughs) Yes, one of the creepier things that's buried there, but uh, certainly not the only one. They had the capacity to do um, uranium diffusion at Niagara Falls because there were all these chemical companies who'd been experimenting with uranium already. The electrometallurgical companies had the ability to roll the uranium into rods to be used in nuclear reactors. So they they did all that work at the falls. There are actually 13 sites that are now um, being cleaned up by the Army Corps of Engineers as former Manhattan Project contractors in the county. And, you know, it all it all boils down to our, our human drive to master the waterfall. And in 1895, they really did that. They, you know, te- Tesla and Westinghouse managed to harness the falls and uh, use, utilize the massive amounts of electricity that they could produce. And from then on, Niagara became the site of all the industries that were interested in cheap electricity, so electrochemical, electrometallurgical, anyone who used electricity in, in manufacturing their product. And at that time, there were no regulations about, you know, disposing of waste, whether it was hazardous waste or just normal waste. And so it just got dumped all over town. So what's the lesson of Niagara Falls history I think that the lesson of Niagara is that you really can't separate human history from natural history. And we have this funny notion of nature as this thing that's out there and it's kind of separate from us. And we are either going to use it or we're going to, you know, deify it, put it on a pedestal and look at it and say, oh, isn't it beautiful? And I think that the reality of the way we live in the environment 
is much more complicated than that. For instance, with the water diversion of Niagara, I'm, I'm not against hydro diversion. I think hydro is relatively benign when it comes to ways that we produce electricity, but it does have a price. And I'm fascinated that we are so interested in disguising that price because it makes it that much harder for us to, to know when the price is becoming too high. Well, Ginger, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. Ginger Strand is author of the new book, Inventing Niagara, Beauty, Power, and Lies. Finding fireflies is great summertime fun. But before you head for the fields in search of fireflies, or lightning bugs as they're also called, there are a few things you should know. First, they're not bugs. They're beetles. And they're not flies. And second, the best time and place to find the blinking beetles is at dusk, in wet, tall grasses, which also happens to be the perfect conditions for man-eating mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are getting bad, huh? Yeah, boy, they love us. Yeah, they certainly do. Adam South, a biology grad student at Tufts University, and Don Salvatore, an educator at Boston's Museum of Science, are lightning bug experts, armed with industrial-strength mosquito spray. They've come to this soggy field in Lincoln, Massachusetts, at the edge of the evening, well-prepared to find fireflies. Okay, so are you ready to go? Yeah, let me just grab my net and my stopwatch. Okay. I have a headlamp. Adam South straps on his blue light headlamp. Fireflies can't see the color blue. And then he leads the way, but finds barely a flicker. So usually there's a lot of fireflies out now. Uh, but this year, there's been a really bad year for this, this uh, species here, Phytinus green eye. Because it was so dry last August, we think that it just ended up killing a lot of the uh, larvae. So this year, there's been almost nothing up here in the, the upper field, unfortunately. Lightning bugs are rarely seen west of the Rockies, but there are scores of species on the east coast though in recent years their numbers seem to be dwindling. So South and Salvador have teamed up for a summer project sponsored by Boston's Museum of Science they call Firefly Watch. Don Salvador says the public is invited to participate. At the museum, a lot of people would come up to me whenever I was doing anything with insects. They'd come up and ask me if, uh, what happened to fireflies. I used to see them as, as children, but they haven't seen them in years. So that got me thinking about, are they disappearing? So we started this citizen science project to find out, to have people go outside at night and count the number of fireflies in their backyard, send the data to us, and at the end of the summer, we will look at it and see what it tells us. How successful have you been in, in enrolling citizen scientists? It's amazing what's happened. We have people collecting data for us in 36 states and Canada and someone in Panama. We have almost 700 people right now collecting data, and the number's going up every day. When you were a kid, I know when I was a kid, and it was summer, it was great. You get your you know, mayonnaise jar and... And find those buggers and capture them, and they glow. It's fabulous. That's right, and I think that's one of the um, the beauties of this project. People are interested in fireflies; they want to help them out. So that's how the project is uh, has been spreading. What'd you guys get? Well, let's see. So Adam's going down on the ground right here. Oh, let's see. So I can grab this female from for you guys, and you guys can see. But she's perched on the edge of the grass, and you can see. Her lantern has only one segment there, 
which is the way that you can distinguish males from, from uh, females. Otherwise, they look exactly alike. And I saw her respond to a male, so I knew where she, where she was. So I'm going to put her back down on the grass. Yay. Maybe she can keep on trying to attract a male. There she goes. Yes. So when you see fireflies flashing, you're looking at a really well-evolved courtship ritual, basically. If, if you see fireflies flying around, you're probably seeing males. Females mostly stay on the, the uh, grass. And the, the males will, will, will fly, and they'll flash their, their species-specific flash. And the females do their own species-specific response. So they pretty much only flash because they're, they're looking for a mate. So Ooh, she's flashing she's a lot, really actually. She's up. really flashing. Yeah, look, look at that. Whoa. That's great. So that means she's hot to trot. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> now, I had heard that there are fake flashes by the female and that she does not have kind things in her heart. Yes, there's a, uh, a genus of fireflies, Photurus, that are about twice the size as the Photinus. And when they're done mating, um, they're looking for a meal. So they will imitate the male Photinus, uh, female Photinus, excuse me, and try to lure the male in. And if she's successful, she ends up eating him. It's pretty gruesome. They, uh, I've seen them where the female Faturus will rip the head off the, the male Fatinus and they, they drink their uh, blood, basically. Because the blood of the Fatinus has these compounds called lucibuvigens, which are defensive compound, which, which pr- protects the, the fireflies from other uh, predators. Do we know what makes fireflies flash? Where's the, where's the light come from? Where's the we do know. fire come we, from? We know, we know what it is. So the... Um, Inside of the, the lantern of the uh, fireflies are these specialized cells called photocytes. And in, inside of those photocytes are two different compounds. There's an, an enzyme called luciferase, and there's a substrate called luciferin. And so basically the enzyme lu- luciferase breaks down the luciferin in, into a, a product that then makes light, basically. The bioluminescent chemicals are named after Lucifer, the fallen angel. Synthesized in factories, the chemicals have many modern applications. They're used in glow sticks. They can detect bacteria and track the effectiveness of anti-cancer drugs. The firefly chemicals are also being developed as organic light-emitting diodes for the next generation of flat-screen TVs. So what's your intuitive sense? Are the number of fireflies going down? Is the population being harmed? There are... Things that you can look at to say it's, it's obvious they're going down because of habitat destruction, because of light pollution, because of pesticides. But until we get the data, we don't know. To help find out, you can join the Firefly Watch Citizen Science Project. Check out the link at our website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Luke Borders, Kim Gittleson, and Jessica Elise Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.